Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Podcast, episode 124. I'm Rachel Lyon here with host Eric Trexler. Eric, how you doing? I'm doing great, Rachel. Afternoon for uh, for a change. This is nice. I know. It's nice. My brain, I think, is working better today, too. I love the afternoon. So I think we're going to have a great conversation today. We've got Evan Wolf with us here. He's a hacker-turned-lawyer, professor, geologist, and spent a career in cyber risk management. He's uh, worked on more than 1,000 breaches, uh, and he's currently a co-chair of Privacy and Cybersecurity at Kroll & Mooring in D.C., and I couldn't be more excited for the discussion to come, Evan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm super honored and excited to be here. Evan, I have to ask, how do you feel about sleep? <laughs> I'm not a fan. It's uh, it's optional. I, 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 I get I get we have to do it every now and then. But I mean, th- this bio is incredible, incredible. It, and, and you were part of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission report, right? Yeah, super. Well, I mean, I wasn't a part of it. I was a senior advisor and played a very minor role. But I'm super proud of the of the report itself and and really the path forward. And and I think. Given that we're at the beginning of a of a really exciting time for the Biden administration, and 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 the Solarium Commission itself, and the commissioners and Admiral Montgomery have been so effective at actually turning the recommendations into law. I mean, over half of them are now, you know, via the national uh, NDA have actually been instituted. It's such a I mean, such an amazing time and process. So I'm super excited about that as well. I'm just going to start I, by thanking you. We had yeah. the the Senate Intelligence Committee commi, uh, committee held, held a hearing with uh, Kevin Mandia from FireEye and and uh, George Kurtz from from uh, CrowdStrike and and uh, oh, what's his name Smith Brad, uh, Brad Smith Brad, Brad, from, Brad Microsoft. I knew it wasn't Bob Brad Smith yeah. from Microsoft and 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 SolarWinds new CEO and. I, I watched it yesterday, about two hours and 45 minutes. And I was just in the dumps. Like, I was like, we're better than this. And just in the prep, you, you brought me out of my funk. So I just want to say thank you. Rachel, yes. show back to you. We can go on. But no, I no, just want I to just, say thank you, Evan. I think that's a great point, because I was going to say that as well. For as long as you've been in, in cyber risk management and the cyber world and the front lines of everything cool that's happening, but all the scary stuff as well, you still have a positive outlook. And I, I want to double click into that. I mean, you know, I know people have said what, you know, five years we could solve this thing, that's my dog. Um, but I mean, really, when we look at the road ahead and you're, you're feeling good about it, I mean, what do you see in the next 10 years? How are we going to turn this corner? Yeah, how are we so positive? Um, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, my, my wife would say it's, uh, it's, it's pure ignorance is bliss on, uh, as, 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 as my therapist turned wife. But really, I think it's because I've, I've seen the change over time. I mean, I, I, you know, I've started my career in government and, and then working at MITRE and in, in, in the early 2000s. And I've seen, you know, everything we've done from how we think about, you know, network security and, and how we think about defense and, and offense to really how amazing the, the tech community has been. I mean, you know, five years ago, we were really talking about EDR and we didn't have sort of all the security solutions we have now agreed. We need a, we need a lot of evolution for them. 
but also, um, you know, I think I, I will, I will credit happily my, my father, who was a Holocaust survivor who grew up in, in Germany and, and then in, in the ghetto of Shanghai, who just always taught me that, you know, things could always be worse. And, and he spent his whole career working for the government. And so I do, uh, I do, I do genuinely believe that, you know, while I don't think, you know, there are, there are sort of like friends that say we'll solve cybersecurity security in the next five years. I'd, I don't know if, if Sunil's quite right on that, but we will, we will be able to manage this better. And that's part of my day job is helping companies think of this not as some exotic pet at a zoo, but, but really thinking about it more is, you know, a CISO is no different than a CFO and, and that they have, you know, risk and they have tools to manage the risk and they have an accountability structure and governance and we need more standards. And, and then we need to think about what role technology plays in that. But it's that sort of it's that evolution of, of, of that process that I just I'm, I'm hopeful about and I've seen progress and I see how companies respond and not that we want to. This is like some bad starfish thing where we're going to have to have every company be hacked in order to sort of get better at it. But there is but there is a lot of that going on. So which components do you think will be most impactful to making us better? Right. Because my career, I've seen us just get worse. Right. We're getting better, but we're not getting better fast enough. I keep I always quote Bruce Schneier on that. You know, we're uh, we're getting better, but we're getting worse faster right? because the adversary keeps advancing. What what areas do you think are going to be really impactful? Yeah, so, look, I completely agree with Bruce and may, may even have stolen this line from him that, you know, uh, offense is much easier than defense. And it's always oh, going to be easier. A, a million to times. Than, right. You got to be right once. You can try and try and, and try. There's very few risks. Yeah. So much and, easier. And it, and as we saw from the solar wind supply chain attack, focusing on the last three words in the description, you know, it is going to be easier to attack large sort of enterprise, especially as, as, as we've seen recently. But, you know, I, I think what I'm what I'm hopeful about and, and where I think we're going to get better at is uh, I never played soccer, but I'll use the bad analogy of the midfield because we have, a, you know, we are really good at offense and, and right. we are we have really good defensive capabilities. What we don't have is that sort of collaboration in that midfield in the middle, even though I really don't know what a midfield does. But but the idea that we can, <laughs> I, I do know, having worked on both sides, that, that we need sort of, you know, defense can't be just companies working on their own, looking inside their network, the government looking at the C2 and the infrastructure outside of the network. And then we have sort of an offense in some gray, gray sort of fuzzy box. We need to shrink the battlefield. So we have people working together in real time, and and I see like glimmers of that in some incidents I work on with with government where we either get notified or where there's sort of some sort of operational collaboration or collective defense. But that's I mean, if there's one thing I've really thought about for the last 10 years, it's how do we sort of operationalize the concept of of collective defense or operational collaboration or use one of those terms. Yeah. And, and that's a challenge, right? There's really nobody responsible, nobody in charge when somebody attacks an American organization or right. whether, whether it be a government organization or, or a company, you know, who do you go to? Well, I go to the CEO or the general counsel because I work for companies. So there is someone in charge of companies. <laughs> who does the CEO? So, I mean, since who, I think with, you guys work for companies as well. I yeah. mean, we all have bosses. Fair point. And, but when, and, when and they those, get breached, like who does the CEO go to? Well, he goes to the board if it's a publicly traded company. Fair and, enough. And, sorry, I don't mean to be a smart ass. I no, apologize. no, no. I like but, this. But I, but, but I, they but need I think help. that's. My, I'm making the point that sort of the one of the pieces that we really need to focus on is governance. And governance isn't like just 
what does I mean to information governance in the in sort of our world means, you know, what who does the CISO report to, whether it reports to the lawyer or the CIO, which is like the raging debate. But really for me, governance means having worked at the Department of Homeland Security and now worked in industry, is really how do we all work together? And I think to 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 Eric, your actual question, not not my smart ass version of your question, is is how do we actually fix that 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 governance piece? And and we need to reassess sort of roles and responsibilities. And and I think that's actually one of the great um, one of the great gifts of the hearing on Monday that you referenced is that there's a, a you know. Uh, I guess, a bill or there's a discussion of legislation around notification. Governance needs to start with notification and the government needs to sort of have better visibility into what's happening. And then from that visibility, we need to have better tools and operational capabilities for industry and government to work together. And and right right now they need to work together in a way that doesn't victimize or treat companies more poorly than they already are treated. Yeah, that government industry partnership, that bi-directional communication, there was a ton of discussion about that. I've been involved in a lot of discussions. I've, I've seen a lot in the industry. We've been asking for it for years. I almost felt bad for it. I think it was Kevin Mandia and George. One of the senators was asking some questions almost to the extent of, and I'm paraphrasing here, like, well, what are you guys going to do about this problem? And the response I got, and I'm, I'm watching this at midnight last night for two and a, two hours and two and three quarter hours or whatever, but they were looking back like, well, what, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I do incident response. I sell cybersecurity <laughs> tools. And I'm thinking about it from a tool provider perspective. Well, it's like, I can give you the tools, but I can't make you use them effectively. Well, that, and, and, and that's really the, that's the promise that the recommendations of the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission report, yes. or actually tomorrow, I'm, I'm a part of the New York Cyber Task Force. We have a report coming out that says some, some things in, in this space as well that, you know, we, we, we need to sort of create better roles and responsibilities. It's what in industry we, you know, every company is focused on right now in the, in the cyber and privacy area, creating a level of accountability. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, one of the first incidents I worked on, uh, at the end of it, uh, there was a conversation between the GC and the CEO and, and, and the short of it is, and there was a much better discussion because they both had very strong Southern accents was who's in charge and the CEO turned to the GC and there were and sort of, there was a question of, well, I'm not really sure. And so then after a minute of silence, the GC said, well, I guess you're in charge to the CEO and chairman of the company. And to which the chairman said, that's not a very adequate answer. Let's fix that. And so we sort of have that same problem in, in government and industry. So CISA um, clearly is going to be taking a more dominant role. They're now an operational entity, thanks to the hard work of Suzanne Spalding and Chris Krebs and, and other all the hardworking people there. So right. we actually have an agency that can can take some leadership. FBI and, and the intelligence community are going to play a very important role in the notification process. But we have to sort of clear the decks in terms of who is responsible for this, how the notification works. You know, and, and maybe we need to do it at the sector level. I mean, DOD has done a very, I think, effective job in both the notification piece, which using the, the, the DOD regulations, the 7012 clause or the safeguarding rule. And now with the cybersecurity maturity modeling certification, the CMMC, that's, you know, they really have created very clear governance. And, and maybe we need to replicate that to other sectors, like in the energy sector and transportation. Well, I think and so. I mean, Rachel, you work you work with the CEO of Forcepoint quite a bit. Um, I know you have over your career. I mean, and being in the position you're in in PR, I mean, if we were breached, you would have a pretty prominent role in what to do, what we say. But I wonder how many organizations, 
I'd love your thoughts on this, Rachel. Not only think about how you're going to hunt on your networks, how you're going to protect your networks, but, but really put a plan in place before it happens on how you're going to communicate, who you're going to reach out to. You know, so, so when that happens, you pull the SOP out of the, out of the old proverbial filing cabinet, whatever that is these days, and you say, okay, we've been breached. We're going to notify CISA. We're going to, this person's going to call FBI. This is what we're going to do. The operational commander, to your point, Evan, who's in charge, is this. I think a lot of organizations figure that out after they've been breached on the after. fly because they have to. Agree right. or disagree? You disagree. I agree. I, I disagree, but I'll let really? Rachel okay. go first. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I just, you know, interestingly enough, a few years ago, um, we did this kind of play with the, the BBC and it was just on this thing, a theater, you know, and all the different roles that have to be played with the CEO, the CFO, your CISO, your comms person, you know, your, your security engineers, um, and you just been breached. What happens, you know, and we created this whole theater and it was built on that premise that most people don't have this incident response plan or they don't have the phone tree, um, updated, right? So maybe they made it for years ago, oh, it's good enough, but then people leave, you know, so it's, it's got to be a living, breathing document. And a lot of people just until something happens, then why spend time on it? I mean, that's what I've, I've seen. <laughs> so. A lot of the so, clients I work with, I don't think would even be able to categorize a major versus minor activity. Right. Like obviously so, something massive they would know, right? If all the computers go offline, they're, they got a problem, they know. I don't know if they'd know how to communicate with anybody if the computers go offline. But, but, but major versus minor on espionage or something like that, I don't know that they, they would even know how to differentiate the two, let alone the escalation process and what to do, certainly outside of the company. But Evan, I, I saw you shaking your head, so talk to us. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so I guess uh, I'll, I'll key on Rachel's point she said a few years ago when you did that. I think a few years ago, I would agree with you that there weren't a lot of incident response plans or playbooks. There were a lot of run books that CERT used, that CERTs used right. at companies. And so, you know, having started off life in that sort of CERT role, I mean, that, that is a, that is a, that's a really important process, but you know, I, I think, and, and I'll be, I'm completely biased here because this is what I do for a living. We put together incident response plans. I've been involved in over a hundred, probably closer to 200, putting together 200 plans for companies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, putting together that playbook is sort of in, in, in my, and in, in, in sort of the group of lawyers I work with DNA, because, you know, that's the very, uh, you know, in every incident I work on sort of, I have a standard set of sort of opening questions or comments that I make. And the first one is, do you have an instant response plan? And and then I follow up with, great, what page are you on? Because <laughs> if, if you aren't opening it up and reading it, then that's not very helpful. If you don't okay. have one, then, then I sort of take over the process and, and maybe we can talk about the other comments I make later. And, and do most uh, clients, with, without pointing anybody out, of course, do most have one and it needs to be improved upon? Or most are like, we're not even sure where to start. That's why we hired you, Evan. Well, I mean, so it's, it's still half and half, I would say, but increasingly companies, and it's not just sort of companies waking up one day and saying, you know, I've listened to this awesome podcast that Rachel and I have. And so now I've decided well, they made the most important thing I do, but, <laughs> but, but it's, to be honest, it's, it's not the CEO waking up one day and having religion on it. It's the, it's the board. 
It's the general counsel. It's the CISO realizing that after some of the litigation that the best defense a CISO has is to have an incident response plan that identifies these pieces. And so everyone is sort of, there's this funnel of, 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 of sort of nervous energy that is going into companies that's requiring them to develop an incident response plan and playbook. And, and at the end of the day, they're actually a pretty simple document. As sort of we said, there's sort of three essential parts to it, assigning roles and responsibilities so we know who's in charge. Because, you know, sometimes, especially for global companies that I work with a lot, the CISO isn't the one who's going to be the incident commander. It's going to be someone who works in a cert, who actually is trained in incident command and knows what NIST 863 is and things like that. And and then second is there's going to be an incident classification system, because as Eric, you said, that's the most important. That's the heart of an incident response plan yeah. is, you know, whether you have a SEV 0 through 5 or SEV 1 through 3 or whatever the system is, do you know what like a bad day in the office is from this is a bad year and this might impact our stock value? And then do you have a an escalation process? So who, who gets involved? How does this go from, you know, a call desk or something we're working on in a, in, a, in, a, in a help desk to, you know, we are notifying the board and we're going out to the SEC and we have a holding statement and we're we're, we're in, in, a, in a blackout on our, on our stocks. And so companies that, you know, and that's the sort of the, if the 101 is just having the plan in place, the evolution, and, and most companies do annual reviews of it. I do a lot of tabletop exercises or scenarios. You know, we do a ton of them, and that's a super helpful exercise for companies to go through and say, you know, are we ready? I mean, it, it's sometimes cool when they have like, you know, heavy, heavy tech involved and you have cool pictures and, and video, but, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes an old school fan of just getting everyone around a table or I guess a Zoom now and, and saying, <laughs> okay, you know, this happened on day one. What are you doing? Three hours later, this happened. And and so the CEO and, and the general counsel and others can really see how everyone does their job so they can actually get better at it. And, and that... You know, that, that training on the IRP is, is critical. And that's if, if there's anything that I, I, I believe in dearly, it's that sort of IRPs are the salvation for companies' ability to better manage their risk. So I see Have partially you seen... why, you're, why you're optimistic. Like, yeah. that, that's great. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you assume the breach, right? Rachel, how many times do we talk about that on the podcast? You've got to assume yeah. the breach. I, I think we have a yeah, lot of people out there that don't even yeah. assume that, right? They're still setting up perimeter-based security and we're going to keep everybody on the other side of this wall. But if you assume the breach, part of that is the incident response plan. What are we going to do as an organization? Right. How are we going to handle this? How are we going to con- contain this as quickly as possible? I see if the optimism. If people want to buy any beta, if they want to buy any Betamax or, uh, or, or stock in like Rubik's Cubes, let me know. Because if, you, if you're still thinking that you're going to prevent these things from happening, um, you know, we, we, have a, we, have a bigger, we have a bigger sort of tech tech corridor problem for them to talk about. Yeah, I could share some stories off the air with you sometime. I, I got to tell you, I mean, I, mean we, we heard, I heard it in the, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the hearing the other night. One of the senators was asking about the NIST guidelines. I think he referenced 853. I'm not sure. And NSA guidelines on a firewall. And he, and he, and he threw a yes or no binary answered question to the four panel participants. And it was essentially, you know, it was something, uh, if you, you, do you believe in these guidelines? And if you do, is a firewall going to work to protect the adv- you from the adversary? And then and there were a bunch of, it depends, even though they were instructed. Because right. I mean, there are still people who understand work. that. I'm, 
Yeah. I'm a huge fan of firewalls and yeah, I you've think got there's to have some that make better firewalls yeah. than others. They're an important aspect of your security. They aren't going to, you know, if that's all you're doing, then that, that every firewall like company shoes. in the world would say that's a problem. They're like <laughs> shoes. If it's cold out, you need shoes, but you probably want a coat too and some pants. Like right. layered defense, socks. right? Defense in depth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. So what else makes and you optimistic? Ringlets on your, on your shoelaces too. That's really helpful too. Probably. <laughs> Maybe that's a uh, next gen firewall. <laughs> so what else um, makes you optimistic? I know we talked about the the new administration, some of the things you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, having sort of started off at DHS, I'm super excited about the evolution of CISA, of, of, of where they're going. But also, you know, this is an administration that has a very clear, I think, mandate when it comes to cyber. And, and they have a group of, of people that are going in there that are that are just like awesome, experienced leaders and practitioners yeah. that, you know, some of them that have been in government for a while, which is great because um, they actually know what to do and can hit the ground running. And they are. And, and so for me, as someone who grew up in Washington, D.C., you know, that that provides a lot of comfort when you have sort of experienced practitioners sort of. You know, just like I, I don't want if I if I call the fire, if I call uh, if I have a fire in my house and I'm calling local firemen, I don't want this to be the first fire they ever put out. And that's why having having those sorts of people. But also, I think the Solarium Commission and the New York Cyber Task Force, there's a lot of good guidance coming from outside. If I think about when we were at DHS and, and even at the evolution of, you know, when when uh, when we were turning over the secretary you know, there wasn't a lot of external sort of think tanks and others involved. Uh, DHS 2.0 was like a seminal document that Secretary Chertoff used to re- sort of re- reorganize, revitalize the department. And, and and now we have so much focus on cyber that we have, that we're having two, you know, panels in one week, you know, two hearings in one week of the quality that have right. all those great speakers on it is awesome. And that we have as many podcasts as we do, and we have as much sort of ideas out there. I, I think that's great because that's 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 where solutions come from. But the other piece that makes me optimistic is is the tech community. I mean, I spend more than half of my time spending with on time with technologists, and and just sort of I spend a lot of time listening to to BD from you know, especially working with like you know, I'm a huge fan of companies like Forgepoint Capital that are, that are making great investments in in sort of next generation security. So I think the idea of like you know that that we are we are developing today the solutions of tomorrow. I'm sure that's someone's tagline that I'll just infringe their trademark on. But the idea that that we are doing that is is, is encouraging because we're already seeing that. I mean, look at look at sort of how we think about securing SaaS based offerings today versus where we were two years ago, even you know, and so. That's Rachel. How you know, good do you feel you, now, right now? <laughs> I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling right? really good. I mean, talk about yeah, it. I think we got this thing in five today. years. I think five years is attainable now. I'm feeling really I love Sunil. He's a dear friend. I do not think five years is sustainable, but I think some amount of years is. I mean, I like yeah. the idea of having years. I mean, I, you know, ultimately, most important title is I'm a dad of a 15 year old kid and I always set goals for him and me. So even if we don't meet them, it's important to have them. So exactly. So we're making progress. Exactly. Things are getting better. When we look at like solar, uh, the solar winds or sunburst, we'll call it UNC 2452. Do you think it's going to be a watershed event? Do you think it's really going to change the way organizations, the government, people look at what's going on? Or is it just another big check mark on the, uh, the 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 continue the cyber continuum. 
I do. I mean, I, I think watershed's a great, great description of it because there's going to be a trickle down impact of, okay. of the solar winds supply chain attack. And I, I purposely used that that description of the event because it wasn't an attack on a single company. It was right. a supply chain right. attack. And, and, and therefore I think, you know, is it going to, is every company going to double its spending and, and create CISO positions, you know, within, you know, Q2 of 2021? No, but are we going to see the trickle down of requirements as the government better understands what the impact was on government systems as we start seeing the implementation of, of programs like the cybersecurity material modeling certification and, and then we're going to see, you know, how, how that become, changes. What is the best practices and standards? I mean, you know, the, the fact that, you know, companies are thinking about ISO standards or the sort of CIS 20 now, or even if you're not a defense company, they're looking at the NIST 800-171, these standards, or that we even have congressmen talking about 53 and the, the FedRAMP standards. That's, that, you know, that, that, is, that is progress. But I do, you know, I, I am... You know, was very uh, disappointed, concerned, scared, all of those issues when I was hearing about and, and, and working with companies that were impacted by the solar wind supply chain attack. And and I do think, you know, it's going to similar to like Midnight Maze and some of the other big incidents that have um, the OPM attack that, that you know, it, it takes time for us to work through how this changes our reality. But if uh, as like a science fiction fan, this is definitely going to change our reality. It just may do it slowly and in some, some places faster. I think the, the role that the intelligence community is going to have and, and, and sort of their, their thinking about this is going to be a lot quicker than ours, obviously, in industry. I hope so. I hope so. There seemed to be a lot of surprise that the that NSA and the intelligence community can't look at attacks launching from U.S.-based resources. And I was like, well, hold on a second. We've publicly, post-Snowden, I think we couldn't have been more vocal about that, that the, you know, the intelligence community doesn't do that. So, I mean, we've kind of broadcast that. It was surprising to me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a huge challenge. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. You can't, like, stay up all night and then uh, and then expect to be super sharp in the morning. And so well, you can't have your can't, privacy you know, and, and then catch everything when, you you know, you want to. I mean, it's a pendulum yeah. and it's going to, you know, it'll swing back and forth and it'll eventually find the sort of happy medium. That's the awesome thing about our democracy. And I think the recent events have sort of demonstrated that, that, you know, that, that you know, it eventually, you know, finds that happy medium or, you know, finds the, you know, finds the, the, the right path. Yeah. Speaking of privacy, I, cause I know, you know, you, you lens on this quite a bit. Um, you know, right now it's kind of a state by state thing that we have here in the U.S. There's California, I think New York standing some things up. Um, where do you see that going here in the U.S.? Are we going to have like our own version of GDPR for North America or, you know, how do you see that playing out? And, and I asked, too, because I saw this article in Politico this morning, um, you know, just kind of talking about like Amazon. Right. And you have these behemoths with all of this data, you know, of course, you know, health data, buying data, advertising data. Um, you know, and, and heaven forbid something happen, right, to, to someone like an Amazon, and it's a treasure trove, right, for an attacker. Um, you know, how, do, how does that play out, right? I mean, when you have state-by-state -state protections versus some kind of national approach. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, I'm not talking on behalf of any companies or any, you right. know, even though we represent a lot of companies, this is just my own opinion. Um, I So I do think you know, that we've seen, uh, you know, an evolution of GDPR-like 
privacy requirements, first coming out of California with CCPA and then right. CCPA 2.0 and now in Virginia with the sort of all of a sudden in the middle of the night, they, they passed a similar requirement. And, and, and we're going to continue to see that. I do, um, <clears throat> you know, I, 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 to, to use the analogy of my when my son was younger and trying to pet my 100 pound dog, you know, we are not going to change the, the, the all 50 state privacy regulations without a lot of willingness from their end. You right. know, he didn't get pet until he wanted to to get pet. And so um, <laughs> and, and so I, I think we are seeing more willingness. I think the eventually the efficiencies of a national data breach law will outweigh the the protections from and uh, of, of, of the 50 state laws. But there's a significant issue around preemption. I mean, without sounding like a lawyer for a second, you know, we have to understand the, the rights of the states versus the federal government and that, that there needs to be a balancing of that. Um, but I, I think that's as someone who doesn't know, uh, who doesn't practice in that space at all, I do think it's solvable because we've we've solved this in other areas, environmental law and transportation law. So I think we can we can balance the equities. Um, I, I, you know, it is going to take a lot of, as you said, willingness of the tech industry to sort of it's not, it's not really roll over, but to, to recognize the efficiencies. And it's, it's not just sort of large tech companies, it's also the, the victims. And, yeah. and that's, you know, since I spend all my time working for victim companies, it's really, you know, how, how are they best served and how do we best manage their, you know, the equities of companies that are that are being hacked? Any guidance there? Recommendations? Um, I mean, I think so on, on that concept of sort of what, first of all, we need to stop re-victimizing companies. We need to have a better system for, and this is what I actually thought was interesting about the, the proposed legislation from um, this week is is that we sort of separate out some sort of government government uh, disclosure versus sort of a, a government notification versus a disclosure to affected companies and contractual requirements or if you have PII, personally identifiable information or any other regulated data, what you have to do. You know, we, we kind of have to separate that out if we really want to be efficient about this because investigations and, and this is where, you know, if we I sometimes use the analogy of like my car gets broken into. I don't have to like first go and tell everyone on my block and everyone that I know that my car got broken into right. and anyone that's ever been near me and then tell the manufacturer of my car. And then I have to sort of figure out what was stolen and then tell everyone that. And, and then and then the police come and, and might not even be very helpful and, and may actually re-victimize me. And so we need to have a better system for working with companies that that, that have that have been through these sorts of, of incidents in a way that, you know, look, they're in a very precarious position because they have everything from to worry about shareholder and equity issues to mandatory disclosure to customer issues to if they're working with the government, sometimes they'll have compulsory service, subpoenas and and the like. And, and that's a really complicated sort of three-dimensional game of chess that they're playing. And we need to make it simpler on, on them because they are really and, – and meanwhile – you know, the CEO is, is rightly and the board is rightly worried about how is this going to impact the you know shareholder value and and, you know, and SEC and, and disclosures of material risk and things like that. So, you know, we, we, we need to simplify that process and, and we need to sort of aid victims more in, in the response. Yeah, I don't want I don't want anybody to ever have to make a choice between staying solvent in their minds or the first responders asking for help, reaching out and letting other people in the industry who may be susceptible to the same type of breach know about it, right? They should be able to reach out and be protected 
by doing the right thing. I mean, FireEye, I, I, I keep giving them credit. They were amazing. They figured it out and they mm. let everybody know right away. I think the SolarWinds team was pretty good at it too. I, I, I credit sort of, yeah, I mean, I, I think what, uh, what, what FireEye Mandiant did and, and others in that time did, including, you know, Microsoft and others was, was heroic because they, you know, they, they bravely sort of went forward and, and in the initial reaction from the security community, I think for the first like moment was a cringe and then everyone realized what, what they were doing. And once we understood the full story, we all sort of happily embraced them and, and, and thank them for that. Cause they did, they did, uh, you know, what they did ultimately helped everyone. The community has been great, which I'm really happy to be in the community. I mean, for me, that's like, okay, these are, these are the peers, the people we work with and, and we did the right thing. I'm a big, I'm a big believer of doing the right thing. Same here. It's as, as an officer, as a, as a lawyer who's an officer, since I'm an officer of the court, like that, right? the oath and I've taken the oath many times uh, uh, as a government employee. I, you know, I, uh, I, uh, I, I, I agree. It's generally the right thing to do. Yeah, but some I people would argue so. doing the right thing is protecting the shareholder, like not taking on Look, that risk, despite the impact it may have on others, third party downstream, whatever it may be. But there, look, there are legitimate, and, and once again, this is my, my day job, there are legitimate reasons why companies do not disclose, and I will right. defend them oh, I agree. all day long I agree with you. advise yeah. them not to, and, and if there's no regulatory, contractual, or other requirements, and, and there is potential risk, or there is no, and, and, and it's up to sort of leadership of companies, and there is no sort of downstream benefit either to them or the, right. or the community that they're in, because there isn't always, I mean, you know, if you're the 70th victim of a maze attack, um, you know, is there really, I mean, does, does, does anyone sort of gain benefit from that? And so I think that's where it is a, it is a very delicate balancing of equities, but, um, but you know, that's where if we had a better system in place for notification, I think that would help it quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, did we lose you, Eric? I'm sorry, Rachel. He's on mute. Oh, okay. Uh, you look like you were frozen. Like we, oh, we lost nope. you. Sorry. Modern uh, working from home COVID-19 protocol. That's right. Awesome. <laughs> I, I have a question. You know, one of the things we talked about with Michael Daniel uh, for the Cyber Threat Alliance was this idea of standards of care. And I'm, I'm always wondering too, you know, like, uh, do these companies have to go it alone or should there be you know, kind of more involvement or more expectations of, um, you know, someone backing you up? Um, you know, is it like state, national, um, you know, there's always that question about cloud service providers, you know, what's their mm -hmm. responsibility and understanding the, the division there? I mean, what do you think? I mean, is there something there to, that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of, of Mr. Daniels and, and, and of, of, of the organization he works at. And so I, I do agree that, that we, we, we need to have, you know, sort of, and it's not just sort of standards of care, which I think, you know, if you right now we have it sort of sector based and, and we do have bits and pieces of right. it. But also, you know, it's it's understanding the role of different sort of levers of these risk management levers like insurance. Insurance providers right. play a huge role and and and, it, and an ever changing role in how companies manage the risk, as does, you know, the advent of managed security service providers or managed service providers that, you know, now are taking over some of that risk that companies, especially if you're in the SMB, small, right. medium business market, you know, you're not going to invest in a cert. You're not going to have, right. you know, a world class right. CISO. You can't. And so. Yeah. And so we need to think about how how do we sort of do cyber at scale? And that's right. where I think some of those ideas 
are are really helpful because you know ultimately you know you know this gets back to companies can't be every company especially if it's a medium or small business can't be defending themselves against foreign nation state threat actors that you know are right. trained in all sorts of evil evil doer type things and and so we need to create a better system of putting elements between them and 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 if it's through you know ISPs or CSP management or better services i mean we, we do this in in the automobile sector all right. the time i mean companies don't have to decide whether or not they want safety glass or seatbelts right um, we sort of require them to have it and you don't have a choice of whether or not you have insurance if you're going to be driving a car right. you're required to have it exactly so we we need to and you know and and there are even rules even though there's no federal you know, speed limit and there's no federal driver's license. Right. You, every state sort of, you know, I can drive from Maryland to Virginia to, to DC and, and, and I know sort of how to follow the rules in all three states right. without having to take a new driver's license, thankfully, because I probably would fail. But that's, <laughs> a, that's only if you ask my wife and son. Nice. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's an interesting point too, because we, we talk a little bit, Eric, we've talked about this before, this you know, looking ahead, you know, this ubiquity of security, right? I mean, it's just every part of every your everyday life. And I think as that happens, obviously, it's it's like your car, right? You just expect the airbag to work, right? Or you just, you know, there's always going to be a seatbelt when you, when you get in the car. And then I think people's expectations could change when, you know, security is literally everywhere, right? On, on every part of your day-to-day life. And I just wonder kind of as, as those you know, minds, mindset shift, you know, what does that mean? Like, you know, how, how does cyber keep up and, and, you know, who, who's kind of backing people up or who's responsible as well? I mean, that's one of the fun things I get to do in my job is since I, my, my sort of whole career, at least as a, as a lawyer for the last, I guess, whatever it's 13 years has been standing between chief information security officers or CISOs and, and general counsels and sometimes CEOs. And, and, uh, you know, my, my, one of my colleagues gave me a Klingon Romulan translation guide because they often think that I translate sort of legal into cyber risk and cyber risk into legal risk. And and so I think p- part of that, uh, you know, one of the really fun things I get to do is work with new CISOs who get to come into an organization or sometimes are the first, but usually they're sort of a new one. And, and they get to figure out, does the car have seatbelts or do we have like a really good dashboard that tells us have everything we that we're doing right? or, yeah. you know, our, our brakes sort of bread, bear, bear thread and we need to replace replace them. And and so learning and, and, and sort of as, you know, as we develop that security culture as a community, as sort of, you know, CISOs, CISOs get better. And I think we're sort of uh, every that CISO community is sort of super, uh, you know, is, is getting better all the time, both in terms of skills and diversity and inclusion and all the right. things that, that sort of historically we aren't great at. Um, I think it's, it's uh, you know, that, that is going to be a core part of how companies get better is, right. is, is through, because they're the ones that are managing this. I mean, it's right. not the CEO that's going to be trying to figure out how to work the the, the airbags and 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 deploy seatbelts right. and the like. Evan, Evan, as we're as we're finishing up, I want to transition to your work at Columbia teaching. Yes, with your students. I mean, we we often talk about the the cyber workforce shortage. Have you seen a over time? Have you seen a change? Are you are you seeing progress? What what? So, give us a great story. I, I, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, actually, um, I, shortly after I started practicing law, it was actually Chris Krebs, who I can credit for giving me the idea to teach a class at his alma mater at George Mason. And I taught a class with, uh, with one of my best friends for almost 
uh, I think 2019 semesters, we taught a class on on Homeland and, and, and cyber law. And, and it was a really and, and it was very sort of, you know, focused on on sort of how 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 how, how the, the government functions and how to work with people. And so we took that approach. Um, I took that approach. And uh, when when uh, Jay Healy, another good friend and an awesome sort of part of our ecosystem uh, asked me to sort of co-teach co a class with him as a, as a lawyer, sort of an, an operator. And so what, what we did is we actually took this year, the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission, since it had so many great recommendations. And at the time when we started teaching, the class hadn't been implemented. Oh, cool. And the class itself is is made up of a, of a third of them are, are students from the School of Computer Science, a, school, a third of them are law students, and a third uh, are coming from the School of International Public Affairs. So they're sort of lawyers, policy, and tech people. We divide them into teams, and they have to work together. Because once again, that's sort of in real life to prepare them for actually what they do. Working is, together. You know, if you're if you're a CTO, you're not only going to work with other people in your tech organization, you're eventually going to have to work with lawyers and you're going to have to work with your board and CEOs. And so it's really preparing them for that. But that's why I've been teaching as long as I'm, I'm you know, I guess if I was like an antitrust lawyer, maybe I'd want to be the only antitrust lawyer in the world. But uh, in reality, I, we need we need lots and lots of more cyber lawyers. And so when I find sort of People like me, I try to, you know, encourage and mentor and build them up. And, and once again, we as a community really need to focus on diversity and inclusion. That's really important to the firm I work at. But also I belong to some communities like the Security Tinkers where that's sort of a core mission of ours. And so that's that's why I've, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess the, 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 the beer money that you get out of teaching is fun. But I teach because I'm trying to really be a part of developing that next generation of of workers and and to be honest, I learn um, I, early in my career, even when I was in grad school, learned that you learn things better by teaching uh, yes. than anything else. And so, you know, I know the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission better now after spending a semester teaching it than I did before. And and students come up with, especially the students at Columbia, were awesome and innovative and smart and 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 learned a ton and and all my all my students are awesome innovative and smart just in case any of them ever listened to this <laughs> you didn't have me as a Don't student you you're lucky <laughs> so i mean that's that's a big part of like the non i call it my my wife won't let me drive an uber so i have to do all these things when i'm not lawyering and and being teaching or or i'm a fellow at the wilson center or being a part of the cfr those are all really important things that you know back to the community point you know, we, this is a community. We need to give back to it. I mean, yeah. I'm, you know, a core member of this, uh, this, this uh, you know, our security tickers community. That's the whole point of like we share with each other, learn collectively, and we need to do more of that. And, you know, eventually we'll, we'll all look like CFOs or COOs, um, but we're, we have a while to go between. between okay, so and not five years, but we're getting better. <laughs> There's a lot of promise yes. on the horizon, both tech, policy, you name it. And we've got a lot of people working and we need more people in this business. Yeah, and more tech and we need to work together better. I mean, once again, I'm not completely, I, I recognize there are a lot of problems. I mean, you know, I, defense is hard and offense is easier right now and we need to change that. And, you know, our legislation and re the regulations are complex and difficult and don't always protect victims. So, I mean, there are other things that we can do better at. I'm not saying... The system's perfect, um, and we have a lot of work ahead of us. And since most of my work is done like between Friday nights and Sunday mornings, because that's when all companies seem to have cybersecurity incidents, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of hard work ahead of us. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today with us and our audience. We appreciate it. Absolutely.
Thank you guys. I really appreciate your time. All right. Well, thanks, you guys. Thanks for joining us for To The Point, episode 124 with Evan Wolf. Have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 